0: Welcome to the Banyan Edge podcast. Here's your host, Charles Sizemore. Hi, I'd like to welcome you to the inaugural edition of the Banyan Edge podcast. Before we get started, so as to avoid getting sued, fired, or perhaps tracked down by law enforcement, uh, let me do go through a few quick disclaimers. First, nothing we say should be interpreted as specific investment advice. We all have our opinions on the market. We like to give our analysis here. You should view this as a starting point for further research on your part. Uh, Secondly, remember we are all active traders. So any security we mention, at the time we mention it, we may be bullish on it, we may be bearish on it, we may own it, we we, we may not. By the time you see uh, see this recording, It may have changed. Markets move quickly. We may have exited that position by then. So always just keep that in mind. We are active investors, active traders, and things do move quickly. And then finally, we may discuss taxes on the show because taxes are actually a really big driver of your overall real investment return over time. keep in mind, we are not CPAs. We are not tax attorneys. We give our opinions on tax-related topics because it's relevant to our investing. But before you act on it, you should talk to your own CPA or your own uh, tax attorney. So with all that said, let's get started. So 2022 has been a year that uh, not much has worked. This has been a a very awkward year to be investing. A lot of people have been disappointed because diversification really did not work as advertised. But there are clearly some exceptions there. Uh, before we get into that, though, I do want to introduce uh, the, the rest of my, my cast and crew here. Uh, joining us will be uh, actually someone that I have worked with for the better part of a decade now, Adam O'Dell, who is the editor of Green Zone Fortunes, 10x Stocks, Max Profit Alert, and Wednesday Windfalls. Also joining us is Ian King, the founder of Strategic Fortunes, New Era Fortunes, and Next Wave Crypto Fortunes. A lot of fortunes going on there. <laughs> Charles Mizrahi, who, apart from having an excellent first name, is the founder of Alpha Investor, Eight Figure Fortunes, and Microcap Fortunes. And Michael Carr, founder of Precision Profits and One Trade. And finally, Amber Lancaster, director of investment research at Banyan Hill and a regular contributor to the Banyan Edge. So, getting into it, Adam, I'm going to start with you. So as I started, this has been a year in which not a lot has worked, but energy is a very clear exception there. Energy has been one of the few just kind of, it's 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 been a, a grand slam if you played it right. I know you have some thoughts on this. I know you are very acutely aware that we may have a potential crisis in energy and there may be some opportunities there. What can you tell us?
1: Sure. Well, there's certainly a longer term story here, but if you just start with the, the near term, Um, I developed a a relative strength sector rotation strategy around 2011, and a lot of folks were worried we're going to get kind of a rollover after the short um, bull market recovery in 2009. And my thought was that you know you want to be on the long side because that's where the Fed is pumping liquidity into the system. Uh, But if you can basically ride sector trends from two to three months at a time and figure out where money is rotating in and out of certain sectors you can do well over the entire bull market as well as when uh, a bear market comes. So really, that's something I've been doing for over 10 years now. And I really saw that come to roost uh, in early uh, part of this year and and later part of last year as well with the energy sector. Um, You know, the energy sector is the only of the 11 U.S. sectors that is up year to date. It's up over 50 percent. And if you had caught some of that uh, short to medium term momentum, you could have done very well this year.
0: No, for sure, for sure. And it's funny. energy of, of every sector, of every sector there is, just two years ago, you could not give energy away. You literally uh, you had to pay someone to take it away. Prices mm-hmm. actually went negative, which was a theoretical impossibility. Yet it happened. So you know, the turnaround there has, has really been quite stunning. Uh, Charles, I know you're never uh, one to, to hide your opinions. You have some thoughts on energy as well.
2: Uh, yeah, so I definitely agree with Adam on this. He's spot on, uh, but for different reasons. Uh, I believe energy is going to be moving higher. I don't believe it's inevitable, and uh, and uh, I'm looking not over the next you know couple of months or a couple of weeks, but this is going to be a huge, huge, huge trend over the next five to ten years. And the and, and really the it's it's the logic of it all. And, and keep in mind before I tell you anything, I uh, bought one Tesla about Tesla vehicle Model Three about two years ago, and I just got another one. So uh, I totally get the renewable side of the story, and that's what drove me to tell you that fossil fuel is going to be a huge, huge, huge trend. Right now, only 4%, only 4% of, of cars in the United States are electric vehicles. 96% are gas-powered vehicles. That means 280 million autos. Now, here's the thing, and the more I research this, and the more I spoke to physicists on this matter, to get one EV battery, one battery to fuel this, how do you get that stuff? You have to mine huge amounts of of dirt. So uh, mining is a tremendous user of fossil fuel. You have to extract close to 500,000 pounds of dirt to get 25 pounds of lithium, 30 pounds of cobalt, nickel, graphite, copper, steel, aluminum, plastic. So the single largest source of all of these materials happens to be China. So the U.S. depends on imports for 100% of these 17 uh, critical materials. So uh, I just looked into renewables and I said, my gosh, to get this kind of so-called clean energy, you have to spend a lot of uh, fossil fuel in order to get that. And by the way, you know, I started looking and said, when I plug my, my car, uh, my charger in, into the world, where am I getting that electricity from? Fairy yeah, dust. it doesn't
0: run on fairy dust, does it? Yeah, like this. So someone has to produce the energy that is generated to actually charge that lithium battery.
2: Yeah, that, that's via coal, that's via coal and and natural gas. So yeah. uh, I don't know about most of you guys, uh, uh, but uh, I know most of our subscribers uh, grew up in the 1970s. And I want to tell you, gas lines were just <laughs> horrific. In 1973, 74, the Arab-Israeli boycott where they stopped shipping us oil because we sided with an ally. In uh, 1979, the Shah of Iran fell. Iran stopped sending us oil. And we were dependent on OPEC. Now it seems uh, our, this administration, they're replacing our dependency on OPEC for China, for minerals to make EVs. And the point well, is,
0: and it's not just China as well. The, the biggest producer of lithium in the world is Chile, and you know, Chile is a friendly country, but it's still one country.
1: That's one. <laughs> There's country
2: a lot of it. risk
0: when you have a, a lot of concentration like that in a single country.
2: Yeah, and then the point is, bottom line, you know, we're just up against physics. We can't make enough batteries for EVs, no matter how much Washington, the renewable energy imagine how many billions of dollars they throw at this and uh, legislate gas-powered cars out of existence. That's not happening. It's like it's like the government's mandating that we eat, uh, everyone have ice cream cones, but there aren't enough cows to make the milk. And, and that's what we're facing. There's not just enough copper and cobalt and lithium to make these batteries. So to me, uh, the way I, I see this, where I've been researching this for the past six months is that we're decades away from uh, EVs uh, proliferating and, and even doing anything uh, in terms of uh, denting our fuel, our, Carbon fuel, uh, um, oil, and, and gas usage. Demand's going to continue to increase. And the Biden administration has declared war on fossil fuel. This is, you don't have to know anything about my politics. This is just fact. And the simple economics is this you limit supply by telling oil companies uh, they can't drill, uh, they have to be clean, uh, banks can't lend them, increase demand what the heck do you expect to have happen, right? This is economics 101. You limit supply, you increase demand, you have higher prices. So I don't know how high uh, oil is going to go, but uh, the the trajectory is gonna be much, much higher because renewable energy energy just isn't there at this time and won't be for the foreseeable future. Well, that's an interesting point, Charles. And you're
0: mentioning politics. And Adam, I wanna throw this back to you because I've known you for the better part of a decade and i can honestly say i have absolutely no idea what your political views are because when it comes to your investing you just keep it about the numbers and it's that's refreshing right now because it's it, it's funny if a lot of those on the left they're they're very into you know esg everything has to be esg but then on the right a lot of it has to be anti woke and so it seems like actually making money, like actually making a profit on the investment seems to be a, a secondary factor, but uh, I know that's not the way you think, Adam. Mm-hmm. And you're, uh, you've, you've been bullish on energy now. You're not a Johnny-come-lately here. You've been bullish on traditional oil and gas for a couple of years, but you've also been wildly bullish on renewables. So in your mind, yeah, how do these two play
1: off each other and, and what's the theme there? Sure. I think there's opportunity to make money on both sides of that equation. I'm um, certainly with Charles Mizrahi in the sense that I, I believe it's going to take longer than most people are estimating for uh, the renewable sector to overcome the old and dirty, so to speak, oil and gas sector. And I think that everybody kind of priced in that this uh, the end of an era for oil. And I think we saw that in 2020 when prices went negative. Um, a lot of people are saying that oil would never go above a certain levels. And we've seen oil just rocket higher out of that. I mean, Politics aside, there are other things, I'm with Charles as well, that the supply side is the problem. Um, we're, we, we'll see increased demand as, as China reopens, as uh, emerging markets use more fossil fuels. We know that that's a longer term demographics trend, but the supply side is really constrained for a couple of reasons. Uh, you know, Oil was in a bear market between 2014 and 2020, while the rest of stocks, particularly growth and tech stocks, were just roaring higher. And so the uh, the sector really got uh, a lot of underinvestment, um, you know, area under the curve, multiple years of underinvestment. Um, the second reason there was underinvestment in oil and gas was what you mentioned, the um, ESG, so environmental concerns. A lot of uh, investors were shying away from investing in oil and gas companies, uh, particularly shale companies that weren't profitable for a lot of the you know the, the decade that they were really pumping. Um, So there's really been an underinvestment um, in oil and gas production that's going to keep a lid on supply. And we think that demand is going to outstrip that, um, you know, in fits and starts over the next decade, really. Well, Adam, where that gets interesting is demand can turn on a dime.
0: If you get a a recession, you could have um, you you could have demand for energy really fall off a cliff very, very quickly. But then, you know, when you have the economy roar out of a recession and that usually happens pretty quickly, then demand hits new highs very, very quickly. So demand demand moves fast, supply doesn't. Bringing new supply online is oftentimes a multi-year investment. I mean, how long does it take to create a new offshore uh, you know, oil platform? These are major projects that you can't just flip a switch and do. I mean, even, even shale production, that is quicker, of course, than a major you know oceanic find or something. but it's it's still not something you can just flip a switch and may make the oil flow. It involves investment. And there's been a real dearth of that uh, really, ever since 2015 when the market got flooded the first time. And then particularly since 2020, when prices went negative, why would anybody invest a nickel in the sector when when prices are negative? So that lack of investment for you know, good night, you know, seven, eight years now, we're really feeling that now. So that does really give credibility to your point that this, this movement we're seeing in energy right now, this is not just a flash in the pan. Like, this is something that will take years to normalize. And along the way there, there should be some really good opportunities to make profits.
1: Absolutely. I mean, one thing a lot of people don't realize is that oil prices don't even have to scream higher for these oil companies to make money. A lot of the ones that have survived the bear market of 2014 to 2020, they they basically cut costs and they get their production costs down to the you know down to the bone. So now, uh, you know, every five or ten dollars uh, they get extra at, at market and. Uh, you know, and and their selling price just basically flows straight to their bottom line. I mean, the free cash flow increases of these major oil and gas companies and even the smaller ones have just been insane over the last seven or eight quarters. Um, So we don't even need oil prices to continue screaming higher at the rate they did in 2021 and 2022 uh, for these oil majors to continue to make uh, record free cash flows. And and ultimately, I think this is a multi-year, maybe even a multi-decade trend, upwards of 10 years. So I'm with Charles on the long view of that. Um, so I think that you know, w- what we saw in the short and medium term momentum was just a hat tip of what's to come, really.
0: Well, Adam, you're also a student of history and you, you study cycles and we, had, you know, we have long periods where energy does well and then long periods where energy does poorly. Um, you know how has energy done in in previous bull markets, where you know, these you know not just a flash in the pan bull market, but a multi-year bull market. like what what kinds? you know what what has energy done in those kind of runs?
1: Sure. I mean, one one thing is you see energy not completely syncing with the the regular um bull and bear markets in the in the stock market. So commodities tend to peak later um than than equities. Uh, but I mean, Charles mentioned in the early 70s, the oil embargo. So, you know, oil was down below $4 a barrel in the early 70s and, it, you know, 10x 10 fold increase to $40 a barrel by 1980. So um, you're right that it really oil goes through multi-decade periods, 10, 15, 20, 25 years where it goes nothing but sideways. Uh, and then it goes through, you know, three to five year periods where it just roars higher and makes new highs and catches everyone off guard. So um, really, that's what I'm looking to happen over the next three to five years plus.
0: Yeah, well, it's a lot of the investment themes of the last several years seem to have really run their course. This seems like the next theme. This seems like the next major investment theme. Now, Charles, returning to you, I think you had uh, you had some other thoughts on energy.
2: Well, you know, the, the, the point is, is that the science isn't there. You know, we, we, all of this is bumping up against physics. People think you make wind farms or solar farms uh you create a solar farm for example remember the sun and the the wind are intermittent and you know their only capacity is about 30 percent of the time what do you do the other 70 percent of the time and then let's assume you know you get all of this amazing amounts of energy uh you know from sunlight or from wind turbines where do you store it there aren't batteries big enough and then you get these make believe these big batteries from fairy dust that we're going to be building that are going to store this energy then you need transmission lines to bring them into people's homes so uh, this whole thing of renewable energy, it's like what I, what I was reading the other day is the reverse Robin Hood. It's going to affect mostly the poor and uh, lower middle class because food and energy are the biggest components of their budget. And we're giving subsidies to guys like me to buy electric vehicles and to put solar panels on my roof. Uh, I, I never did. Uh, the, a guy came by to sell me on solar panels, and I said, "I'm in New York. How much sunlight do we actually have during the day?" He goes, "Don't worry about it. I'll make you 10000 know, Yeah, I 000. almost did
0: it in Texas, and so my homeowners association wouldn't let me do it. I, I would. I mean, it's hot in Texas. The sun is always shining, and uh, I was actually looking forward to the tax break.
2: Yeah, but big deal. Even if, yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. So you know, we're 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 spending a lot of energy and a lot of resources to make this energy, which isn't even as efficient. So, uh, uh, you know, we're really backed into a corner here and uh, which is uh, great for fossil fuels. Uh, I can't see buying how anyone's going to go wrong uh, over the long term. Buying fossil fuels simply because the trend is there. It's like I said, I don't believe it's inevitable. We we drink up about 19 uh, a billion uh, 19 or so. I think it's 19 million barrels of of, of oil a day and EVs uh, and all of these things, even if they magically appear tomorrow, are not going to decrease that by by much. In fact, there's an interesting stat for you. In the past 20 years, we have spent tens and hundreds of billions of dollars yet, global. Usage of renewable energies is only three percent. Ninety-seven percent, ninety-seven percent is is still fossil fuel. So, uh, as much as we like to wish this and 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 dream it, you know, look. If you told me, you know, who's not going to be for renewable energy, you know, I, I, you said who's for apple pies. I'm for apple pies. Great, but let's be real about this. There isn't enough uh, material. We have to spend enormous amounts of money and huge, huge, huge carbon footprints. How do, how do you dig out five hundred thousand pounds of dirt? You know, there there were kids in the Congo picking through rocks to get you lithium. You know, I was thinking about that the other day. I'm plugging into my into my electric, uh, of my electric Tesla charger to get fuel based on based on coal and natural gas to charge a lithium battery, which some under kid in the in the undeveloped world is picking through, working 20 hours a day. How does this make sense? And the answer well, is no, no. no.
0: Don't underestimate, though. Don't underestimate the power of profit to uh, make a lot of these things
2: that seem impossible. Hey, Charles, possible. Charles, you could take all the profit of the world, the amount, we're bumping up against physics. We can't make the sun shine anymore. They said the same thing about traditional,
0: remember peak oil, all the talk about peak oil a decade ago, and then the fracking boom happened. So I, I hear you. I don't necessarily disagree. I'll tell you what, but... Charles,
2: I'll take the other side of any bet you want and tell you that in another 10 more years, maybe we'll go up to 4% re- uh, renewables, because every specific physicist i've spoken to and i've spoken to about three or four for the past six months and done extensive research on this because i'm not a physicist and i asked them how could you build these things and one guy actually told me he goes there is not enough copper in the world and for those of you who are engineers out there know that there's no replacement for <laughs> copper you can't not substitute yet. copper there is a not enough uh um, um, copper in the world to mine to store the amount of energy that we need on a daily basis so, so there I you suppose have
0: you could re, you could replace uh, copper with aluminum, but uh, if nope. you've ever lived in a house that had aluminum wiring, you know that's a really bad idea. but
2: <laughs> Doesn't do it. Doesn't do it for, I, I, uh, I, I, for I, I, batteries. Go, oh, make, uh, Charles, let me know when here. you make these jokes, man, because I just didn't pick that one up, and I know you're a
0: funny guy. <laughs> now let's uh, we, let's have a gentleman's agreement here. Uh, we can take the over under on what percentage of, of global energy is, is renewable, and uh, the, the the loser buys the winner a beer. We'll save that for another show. We'll save that for another show. Um, all right. Energy. Big opportunities there. Energy is actually tied very closely to inflation because energy is obviously a big part of, well, it's it's a big part of your, your, your budget, of course, as, as an individual consumer, but it's also a big component part. So every store that has to stock their inventory, they have a large energy bill in you know, the transportation of getting the inventory to the store. They have to keep the lights on. There's, there's Energy is a big cost that eventually flows through to prices. So inflation has really been the biggest theme of 2022. More than anything else, everything kind of circles back to inflation. Why? Because inflation is what's forcing the Fed to aggressively raise rates at the fastest clip they have done in over 40 years. The last time the Fed was this aggressive, I was out of diapers, but uh, I was still a wee little lad. I mean, that that's how long it's been since the Fed has been this aggressive. And why? So the Fed is fighting inflation and that causes them to raise interest rates, which then, of course, flows through to everything else. Everything is ultimately priced based on interest rates. That's why as rates have risen this year, you've had stocks collapse, you've had bonds collapse, you've had you know, real estate hasn't collapsed, but it's, it's been rocky. So sort of as goes inflation, so goes the rest. Um, yeah, you know, Amber, we haven't heard from you yet. Like, what, what's 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 your macro view here? Where do you see all of this going?
3: Sure. Well, we are in a rising inflation environment, and I can I can tell you that heads of businesses are preparing for a downturn in 2023, which is prudent. And actually, checking Bloomberg Economics model, it actually indicates that a recession is inevitable going into 2023 as the full effect of all these Fed rate hikes actually take hold in the economy. So C-suite executives, they have to prepare for an extended period of higher interest rates. We can just call it a new era of higher for longer interest rates, as well as cost for capital, Charles. So what is helping the US economy? I'm always an optimist. I'm always in in a realist looking to the economy, but right now, We can tell you that individual households still have excess savings uh, to the tune of $1.3 trillion. Even though it's on a decline, it's still there. That savings uh, buffer is there, as well as Social Security recipients will receive an 8.7% increase in their monthly payments for 2023. So these little nuances actually could help explain why December's preliminary University of Michigan, a consumer sentiment number this past Friday, released this past Friday, uh, which actually rose to 59.1 versus 56.8 prior reading, actually showed resilience and consumer optimism. So for next year, I think we can expect to see the supply chain issues steadily ease as businesses flush with inventory actually discount their items. And this will lead to a disinflationary environment, at least through the first half of 2023. Uh, we could expect that. Um, well, now,
0: now that's a contrarian view because you know, right now all you hear about in the, in the news is inflation, 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 inflation. You're saying we're going to have pretty significant disinflation. I think that that puts you uh, that puts you really kind of in the contrarian camp here.
3: A little bit, but it's all about inventory and how we need to they'll see price prices come down in our goods, not so much services, service industry, still seeing inflation, but cost for goods and what it costs to actually house excess inventory, especially in the retail sector, we'll see those prices uh have a, a decline uh overall. Because uh this too much inventory scenario, Charles, will likely help curtail and help um. Uh, Curtail both the headline as well as the core inflation for 2023. And we all know that the Fed has a 2% target in place for inflation, which may mean headline and core inflation may post in the range of 3 to 5% uh, toward the end of 2023 into 2024. Uh, but in all, uh, many marketers uh, want the Fed to pivot including me. We wanted to pivot on rate hikes to take a step back, slow down, slow it down a little bit. We're still doing uh, this week, hopefully on in, on Wednesday. But Chairman Powell has been nearly just, unwavering. Just maybe turn the
0: electricity down on the electroshock therapy they're giving us. <laughs> just make it a little less painful. It's
3: a little less painful, but we know that Chairman Powell is, is nearly unwavering in his stance on where the Fed is headed with rate hikes are going to continue until he sees that inflation is tamed. And I have to add, Charles, one of those key indicators that may help stem rate hikes in is the definitive evidence of a cooling labor market, which we're we're not really we've seen little bits of that, but it's still a red hot labor market. Uh, so, what does this mean for our stock investors? Well, I, I can tell you, uh, dealing with an extended period of higher interest rates will cause uh, many businesses to actually rethink. How they get things done—that's that's a positive spin on this. Um, they'll have to innovate, and this has the makings of an of becoming another D word, Charles, instead of disinflation, a deflationary boom based on technology innovation. So, there's it's like a little. No, uh, you you business.
0: run super contrarian on that one. You went from <laughs> not not just inflation to, to disinflation this, to, yeah, to actual deflation.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's
0: yeah, I that's that's bold. I like it
3: you're welcome thank you
0: <laughs> one, one other uh, question i would ask is okay so you have these disinflationary forces mm-hmm. at, at work but you know price is falling but but some of these input costs for companies that doesn't turn on a dime it's going to take yeah. a while for that to flow through right. so what do you see profits looking like over the next several quarters does that mean profits get squeezed a bit or does this all happen much quicker than i'm thinking
3: well, they. I think they, we will see some, not we'll see some squeezing in earnings going forward. I think we'll see some revenues increase, but we'll see squeezing in earnings, and that will affect profits. But that's why I'm thinking, when when your back's against the wall and you're running a business, you want to find the best way to increase your profits. Mar- profit margins, cut costs, and that's where that innovation type uh, concept comes into place. And I know we'll be maybe talking about this later, but there are certain. Get
0: lean and mean,
3: huh? Yeah, get lean and mean and invest in tech and certain like robotic automation type things that can get the job done at a cheaper cost. Because, hey, you have to stay in business and, and and live through this unprecedented time that we're living in. I mean, look, we, I mean, I don't think there's a way we can compare what we've gone through with this pandemic and living through right now. I mean, everyone's trying to predict. It's very hard to predict what's going to happen. But we can see what people need to do to uh, survive going forward, especially. Heads well,
0: now, Amber, you bring up a really good point, And I want to bring in Ian. Because he's written extensively lately about uh, this, not this globalization, uh, -globalization. Mm deglobalization, the kind of scaling back of of globalization. And, And that it's happening. Like it's been happening for a while, due in part to political tensions, due in part to rising costs in China. And then the pandemic happened a few years ago and it pretty much blew up the globalization model. When you have long supply chains spanning the globe, that sounded Great when you could actually get stuff from country to country, when everything shut down for a while, that really did not seem like such a good idea. And we're we're still sort of paying the price for that. So the only way you can deal with with deglobalization is massive investments in technology and robotics, automation, et cetera. And Ian, I know you have some thoughts on that.
4: Yeah, I think we're going to see another industrial revolution here in the United States driven in part by automation. I mean, if you look at Amazon warehouses as a great example of doing more with less, which is what technology allows us to do, you know, it's just a, a couple engineers and mostly robots running around the floor. And that is a microcosm of, you know, a larger supply chain problem that we're looking to solve when you can see in Amazon warehouses. But, you know, I agree with Amber in the sense that I think that, you know, people are focusing on inflation right now, but really the focus should be on what people aren't thinking about. And to me, that's deflation. And a lot of this is driven by the fact that we're still in the golden age of central banking and they're the only game in town. So, you know, the majority opinion is that central bankers are smarter than us and they're nuclear engineers because they use words like marginal propensity to consume. And, you know, Greenspan kind of invented like Fed speak and use all these like very esoteric terms that made him made us think that he was the smartest guy. When in reality- I have a
0: master's degree in finance and I have yeah. never understood half of what Greenspan said. It I, it was intentionally mm-hmm. opaque.
4: Right. But I mean, the fatal flaw there is that like you might be a rational person and we all might be rational people, but most investors and people are very irrational. And to try to think that you can, uh, uh, you know, contribute or attribute any behavior to like a, a model is impossible. And to that extent- you know, the Fed, which we believe is nuclear scientists, they're more like degenerate traders just trading like GameStop stock, you know, like, (laughs) they're like, the guy at the hotel that like wakes up and goes in the shower and like cannot get the hot and cold temperature, right, right, they overshoot one way, and you're like scalding yourself in the shower, then you're like freezing cold in this new hotel room. That's basically what the Fed is like. like. And I think that, you know, they overshot to the downside, obviously, with COVID and all the monetary stimulus that came out, re- redoing QE again, as well as all the other fiscal stimulus that came from the Trump and the Biden administration. And now I think that they're going to overshoot it on the rate increases side. Uh, right now, the market expects a terminal rate of 5% by the end of the year, but the 10 years telling you that, no, 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 You know we're going to be like 3.5% inflation and growth for the next 10 years. Which is the most inverted that the Treasury yield curve has ever been in history, uh, from what I can uh, 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 see. Certainly, and, the most inverted it's been in 40 years. Right, and 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 I started in the bond market at Solomon Brothers, and one thing I learned the first day is that the bond market dictates everything in this world, and uh, you know the bond market is telling us right now we're probably going to recession, we're probably looking at you know years of very slow growth right now because the Fed is being too aggressive on raising rates. And I think that uh, there are also some signs in the stock market too that, that investors are starting to believe it were of a recession, not inflationary environment. Number one was last week the PPI came out and it was hotter than expected or in line. Usually you see the stock market sell off and interest rates, especially in the long end of the curve would go higher, they actually went down. And so that is telling me that the market is more concerned about a recession right now next year than it is about inflation. Uh, you know, second to that, uh, outside of it is, this week, obviously, we have the CPI and we also have the FOMC meeting. Uh, I think that the the market uh in, in terms of like if you look at the structure of the equity market, you've got consumer staples that are and uh utilities that are trading at a higher price earnings va- valuation than the average, which means that people are hiding in defensive stocks because they believe a recession is coming. And that's usually a sign that things are probably gonna go the other way uh in the next year when people are hiding in these defensive stocks. And then the other thing is that institutions have the amount, most amount of cash they've had on their books since I think 2009. I think it's like 6% cash uh, on their balance sheets rather than having equities or bonds, uh, which means that they've, they've pulled back from the market as well.
0: No, they they have been completely absent from the game all year. There's been very little institutional buying for the entirety of 2022. Mm. It, it's, it's one of the longest kind of stretches I've ever seen of yeah a lack of institutional buying
4: well what we've seen so far too from you know investor perspective is we're in what's kind of a rolling bear market they've ever seen that meme of like the grim reaper going in like one door coming out with blood and then he goes to the next door and then there's like the last door that he's going to this is what it's been <laughs> it's been growth you know in crypto large cap tech started getting hit earlier this year in a bear market nobody is safe right so like at the end of this, every sector will have a significant pullback. It's just a matter of time for this to just roll through everything.
0: It's like one domino at a time, so to speak.
4: Yeah, it's like, you know, you go, you you leave one sector and try to go into another one. And then the bear market comes and finds you there and 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 outs you. So I think that <laughs> there's still, my view there's still is that- when the market comes around to assuming we're going to have a recession next year. I think we're going to have a drop in the first half of next year. But I do think that the names that have been hit the hardest in 2022 will actually outperform the ones that have done the best in this, in 2022.
0: Yeah, well, this, the, the everyone that was going to sell some of these tech stocks has likely already sold them. And <laughs> there's nobody left to sell them, so to speak. So uh, there is that aspect. And that actually uh, reminds me. Uh, Mike Carr, what you're a momentum guy. You know, like what are what are you seeing right now? Like we're talking about, kind of what's what that next domino like likely to fall is. What's working?
5: I think what we need to focus on is the long term. Here looks really challenging, and Ian hit on it with deglobalization. I'm in Arizona now. Phoenix just got the Taiwan semiconductor factories. We will never know what they spent for that. We know that Foxconn got $3 billion from Wisconsin. Arizona doesn't announce it.
0: The state secret. We know, what's that? It's a state secret.
5: It is here. We know the city gave them $200 million. Um, the average return on investment on these projects is about 5%, so 20-year payback. As recession hits, they're going to outbid each other. The paybacks are going to become even longer. And this is just going to prolong the economic crisis that we face in the years ahead. So I know everybody wants to be upbeat. We need to stay defensive. What we are seeing right now is those defensive names are great. And then on the opposite side of the market, put options on tech stocks. Uh, For whatever reason, Chinese tech got a bid last week. They're giving sell signals all day now, today. That's interesting. So,
0: that's interesting because that's been just carnage for most of the year and seeing signs of life there. That's, that's interesting.
5: It is, but I think it's short-lived and I think it's time to already start. Uh, it was kind of a dead cap bounce. It's time to trade the next leg down there.
0: Well, one nice aspect, you know, we, we're all a little concerned that a uh, bear, well, we all kind of acknowledging a bear market's a real possibility. It's kind of a matter of when it does it when does it hit? You know how bad does it get? What sectors get hit the worst, et cetera. But one nice aspect is none of us are really buy and hold guys necessarily. Like we we tend to be active investors, active traders. We we focus on what's working or what we expect to work. So I, I do I do like that aspect. Yeah, the people that will get hurt over the next year. Are likely those that have static portfolios. They have their 401k with you know, an S and P 500 fund or whatnot in it, and they're they're not choosing the right sectors or they're not they're not being nimble and trading in and out of it. So I think that aspect's interesting. You know, what do you like right now? We we've discussed kind of what you don't like, but what what do you like right now, Mike?
5: Right now, it is those consumer uh, consumer staples that seem to be outperforming energy. Of course, energy is interesting because the downside for oil is about seventy two dollars a barrel, not much below the recent price, and we know that because the administration announced they're going to buy one hundred eighty million barrels at seventy two dollars. So, whenever the price gets close to there, arbs are going to arbitrage traders are going to come in they're gonna keep the price near 72. It's not gonna fall much lower than that unless the economy really falls off a cliff. But generally when you wanna make a big purchase, you don't announce the price in advance <laughs> and-
0: That's like playing poker know. while showing everybody your cards, right? That's that's not usually the smartest move.
5: Yeah, so that's gonna keep a bid on energy for quite a while because it's gonna take months if not years to refill the strategic petroleum reserves.
0: Well, that's interesting. It's just one more kind of bullish, you know, arrow in that in that quiver. Yeah, exactly. Now, Ian, I know you need to leave here before too long. You're a international man of mystery with places <laughs> to be. But uh, Domestic travel, on? Charles, domestic <laughs> travel. <laughs> oh, come on. Let, let me hype it up. It's <laughs> much more mysterious to say uh, the truth is you're going to New Jersey. I know this, but like, like it was more exciting to just leave it ambiguous as to where you're going. Yeah. But uh, oh, well, that's Don't all see. right. What do you uh, what, what do you what do you like right now?
4: Uh, so we are buy and hold investors. I think you said that most of us are traders. Um, I focus on uh, areas of the market where I think technology is converging and will lead to growth that people are underestimating. Um, I know what you guys said about oils earlier. Uh, you know, At the end of the day, it's not really my wheelhouse. I mean, if you look at ExxonMobil, it's flat over the last 20 years. I focus on companies that I think will grow their revenues and earnings in a way that we're underestimating now and are very difficult to forecast. And you know, if you take a step back, right now we're in the information age, right? We're in the information revolution where the way we do everything is completely changing. And that is the focus of our newsletters is to find ideas in these sectors where it's people don't quite know what the convergence of certain technologies uh, will lead to. You know, a good example of that is the, the smartphone and the growth of the app ecosystem. We had a smartphone that came out in 2008, and then, you know, we, we started seeing the proliferation of apps. You know, in there were like three
0: 2010. apps that, that were out at the time, and it, it, you know, to the casual observer, it
4: looked interesting, but it didn't look world changing. Right. It was at totally time. obsolete. And then you got, LTE, 4G, and now 5G technology, and anything that you could possibly think about doing on your phone, uh, you know, it leads to the growth of new super apps like Uber and all types of payment apps that you can do now that you couldn't do 10, 15 years ago. And on top of that, you know, most Americans didn't have a smartphone 15 years ago, and now we spend an average of six hours a day on it. So we're looking for, you know, those type of technologies that we think are totally traditionally game-changing. Let me interject something there.
0: Average of six hours a day. Remember, average is just the one in the middle. That means yeah, six hours a I, mean, I read it crazy. The
4: population st- work, is on their phone for significantly longer than six hours. Right. And, uh, and then on top of that, the, the average Gen Y user is on TikTok alone for 90 minutes a day. I mean, that's like, it's completely replaced cartoons or like whatever type of hobbies that you had after school. You're just on TikTok and maybe even between classes. So I'm usually a pretty permissive parent, but uh, I
0: did have to lay down the law on that. TikTok is banned, as is Instagram, from all of my kids'
4: devices. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And you're starting to see <laughs> state governments do that as well. Like Texas just banned using TikTok on state phones. I think Nebraska and other states as well. Which is a good case for the short form videos that Meta and Instagram are, are now you know trying to replicate TikTok success if it's so uh, addictive they're having to ban it um well that it's that that tells you that it, it must really it must really work <laughs> i think less on the addiction side and more the concern that it's a software company controlled by the the government of china and that, that you too. know we we don't want to have these chinese propagandists owning all of our children's data and being able to basically flip a switch and change their attitudes uh towards the ccp so uh i, I think that uh, and th- and there by the are way, that would have been a great just science fiction
0: movie a few years ago. A few years ago, just a couple years ago, that would have been a fantastic science fiction movie. And now that's a real thing.
4: Uh, it's I, it's terrifying. I mean, it, it, that's what I love about technology is that things that you couldn't even imagine a couple of years ago become reality. You know, everything happens quick uh, slowly at first. Then all. When at was once. the last time you watched a, an old James
0: Bond movie? Remember how cool the James Bond gadgets were they're all yeah i mean the the stuff we have
4: now they're all obsolete completely basically the coolest thing that
0: q would have thought up in his lab in any james bond movie from the 60s 70s 80s 90s or even early 2000s you can do it on your iphone Mm -hmm. and better
4: yeah no i completely agree with you like i have this dick tracy style apple watch you know where i can like make calls on it and Uh, get any information (laughs) on my wrist, basically. I can even get information about my own health. You know, how many hours I slept last night, how much exercise I got today, which right now is minimal, but uh, maybe that'll increase later as I'm walking through the airport. So on that note, thank you for having me, guys. Uh, Enjoy the rest of your week. It was a pleasure, and uh, I'll talk to you next week.
0: Yes, sir. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, carrying that banner. Adam, I haven't heard from you in a while. You've been conspicuously... Quiet. What's uh, what, what's on your mind about all this?
1: Well, another uh, you know, wh- one of our approaches at uh, Green Zone Fortunes, which is our flagship newsletter, is to look for well-rounded companies. So I started off as a sector strategist, you know, looking for sector rotation. But uh, we know that there are core drivers of stock returns. Um, those are include momentum, value, growth, quality, size, and volatility. And you see a rotation not only um, among the sectors that are working, but also those factors. So obviously, during the tail end of bull markets, you see momentum and growth really kick into high gear. Those are the factors that outpace you know value and quality. But I think we're going to see a rotation. We're already seeing a rotation um, to to value for sure. I mean, the value premium did um, you know gangbusters coming out of the the dot com bust. Um, you also see small caps do do well. Um, so that's kind of I'm looking for pockets of you know smaller companies that are trading at deep discounts. In fact, you can find a lot of those in the energy sector. So you can kind of do a double dip play on a sector, um, a sector and a factor play. So those are some of the things that we offer uh, subscribers at Green Zone. And if you look at the you know 12 to 14 positions we have open right now, they're all across the sector. Some of them are value plays. Some of them are more growth plays but we're really looking for a well-rounded company. So there's not no one size fits all answer and, and the thing is to be able to adapt as, you know, 2023 may be a lot different than 2022 and you have to you can't uh always try to fight the last war. You know, Adam, you mentioned the
0: word adapt. That that's actually one of the things I always liked about about Green Zone Fortunes and about the model that that underpins it because you factor momentum into that equation, you're always changing the mix. Like you never get sort of pigeonholed or or boxed into a particular investment style, you are forced to move with the market, whatever is working at that time, your, your portfolio sort of naturally pivots into that. And you're not necessarily having to, you know, use your crystal ball to to look, I mean, the data drives that. And I, I really like that aspect. I think it's interesting. The same model would have had you pretty heavy in tech and things like that. A couple of years ago, It's now pushing us into things like energy and more gritty industrial stuff so i think that's a really nice aspect
1: yeah it's interesting to see the rotations play out in real time i mean a lot of people discounted industrial stocks and material stocks and certainly the energy sector uh, but to see those rotate into favor there's a lot of you know medium-term opportunity there and when i say medium term i'm talking about you know one to three years so is uh, this isn't a, a type of thing you have to be a trader to take advantage of um if you can just kind of adapt with the market over medium term Cycles uh you can do a lot better than just trying to buy and hold on for 20 years at a time
0: yeah true that
1: well Mike yeah you know, I think I cut
0: you off before you've been fairly quiet what uh what would you add to that
5: I think you just have to follow the market I think the idea that you know we can just stick with one sector forever from now on, is gone. Uh, Technology is changing, but technology in a broader sense. You know, we didn't know we'd have all these things 20 years ago. We don't know what we'll have 20 years from now. So we need to just watch and adapt as the market does. Momentum is the best way to figure out what other people are buying. And that's the key to success. If you're the smartest guy in the room and you own the best stock and no one else agrees with you, you don't make any money using momentum. <laughs> other people already agree with you. So you have a chance to make money quickly.
0: Now, momentum investing is the the what I call the no ego investing model. Uh, you don't worry about being right. You worry about making money. And that's that's what makes it interesting. It's a very mechanical, unemotional way to approach the market. And it's one that you know if executed well you're never going to get yourself in trouble. you're never going to take uh, an outsized position and something going the wrong way if, if, if you're if you're investing based on a, on a momentum trend and you have a clearly defined exit strategy on the upside or the downside you're fine. you're not going to get yourself in trouble
5: and I think that's the key a momentum investor knows when they're going to sell even before they buy. So you have your exit all planned out before you even place your initial trade. And that keeps you out of
0: disasters. That's really, if you think about it, that's really true of any successful investment strategy. I, I, where most people screw up, and it doesn't matter what your style is, if, if you're a momentum guy, if you're a value guy, if you're a growth at a reasonable price guy, if you're a Warren Buffett disciple, whatever you, 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 know, you style yourself as, you can buy well. You can buy something at the right price that has momentum. Whatever, I, I, you can you can buy right, but you're still not going to make money unless you also sell right. You need to know under what conditions you sell. Do you hit a price target on the upside, or you know, do you hit a stop loss? And you know, at what point do you do you pull the ripcord and get out? That's how you you minimize losses and 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 maximize profits. So I think that's that that's really an important uh, element is just the exit strategy.
5: Yeah, exactly.
0: Now, Charles, you've been quiet for a while. And I know you're always eager to express an opinion. What, uh, what do you think? About what? About life. <laughs> what, uh, what do you, uh, you've, um, you're, you're more of a fundamentalist. You know, you're more of a roll up your sleeves and dig through the financial statements. What, uh, what, 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 Potential bombs? Do you see out there? I know a lot of the bombs you've identified in the past have already exploded. <laughs> you, uh, you you are no fan of some of the uh, kind of the glitzy tech models of uh, of the last couple of years. What's uh, what what do you like right now? You mentioned energy. What uh, what else?
2: Well, I'm a bottom up uh, bottom up guy, and you know, I've been doing this for close to forty years, and uh, I started floor of New York Futures Exchange, and I traded momentum, and then I started seeing other people and speaking to some you know, brilliant money managers, and saw how relaxed and calm they were. And I said, "What do you guys do?" And they said, "Well, basically, we buy quality businesses at uh, at uh, when they trade at bargain prices, and then sit on our ass." So I said, "That's a great way to make a living," <laughs> and uh, that, that's basically what I do. Is is. Uh, Momentum is you have to try to speculate on what the next person is doing. That's a game I don't play. I, I can't play it. I don't know anything about what the next person is doing. Okay, but
0: Charles, do. specifically, when uh, do you which, sell, uh, though? Like, like, like when, when do you
2: know well, you, a trade you, you, run you, the trade is running its time and... No, the sales yeah. time basically is when the thesis is no longer there. Uh, yeah. And uh, the reason I, I bought um, you know, Joe's hardware store is because they're going to build a subway line near it. And if they don't build a subway line near it, it's not a good business anymore. So one is the uh, Charles,
0: But this is this is good stuff. So so you know, you, your your exit strategy is more um, event focused than you know price target focused. And how how do you manage that? Do you write that down? Do you just do you put that in your thesis? If 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 X happens, I, I I'm out. I mean, like, like what does that look like?
2: Like in the wild? You no, know, very simple. Look, if you buy a quality business, right? If you buy a business like Coca Cola, or you know we have three or three that we just. Uh, we just add in the last couple of months into Alpha Investor, and these businesses are just, my gosh, I'd love to hold these forever. You know, one of them is a, is, is a, is a business with a market share that's five times greater than the nearest competitor, has 20 million customers, generates a billion dollars of free cash flow, they're buying back shares, and Mr. Market is selling it at a dirt cheap, cheap price. So uh, why would I sell this? Well, if the, if the valuation becomes so high, if I'm now, you know, I'm buying a dollar bill now, it's trading at 30 cents. The market sees this as a huge... Uh, um, uh, it only sees it as a 30 cent uh, um, value and we see it as as much much greater so um, you know think about 75% of all trading is done by machines all day you know trying to algorithms playing back and forth with each other you know they know the the the, the price of, of everything and the value of nothing and what we do is look for those mispricings and when they're out there you know we have an opportunity to pick up great businesses that are tremendous compounders and uh, and just sit and, and sit back and let the business make money for us
0: so i so- think it's i think it's fair to assume that you are in no way afraid of a, of a bear market <laughs> you view a bear market as a fantastic opportunity
2: you know, I, I shop at Costco. So you tell me that all of a sudden Costco doesn't have things you know at cheap prices. Would I still be going there? The absolute answer is absolutely not. I'm paying. I'm paying. I'm paying a fee each each year to, to go to the privilege of buying things at cheap prices. Why in the stock market is the only place in the world where people see cheap prices? They run for the hills doesn't make any sense. And I think the reason is is because most people don't have the idea of what the value of the underlying business is, because every business, every stock that's being traded is attached to a business. A stock is nothing more than a piece of a business. If you could value how much that business is and compare it to what the stock price is, that's your opportunity. If the stock price is trading at a great discount to the valuation of the business, you buy. If the stock price is trading at an enormous valuation to the underlying worth of the business, you sell of uh, Carvana, for example, I had a price target of Carvana at zero, I the thing went up 400% The thing was worth nothing to me. It didn't produce. Profits. I, I really it feel like, like I missed cash. the boat on
0: that one, because I had a used car to sell and silly me, I actually tried to sell it in a private market, I could have sold it to Carvana and made more money. I, obviously, the economics make no sense, which but is why Carvana is a zero. But, well, uh, yeah,
2: but but a lot of people didn't think because they were trading it based on the price movement and what the other guy was doing. But eventually and it, like, and
0: it was a sexy story. Like they, they yeah, got seduced well, by the story. <laughs> I
2: don't I don't get seduced by those things because at the end of the day, uh, a stock follows the fundamentals of the business, not the other way around. Over the short term, Ben Graham said the stock market is a, is a voting machine. It rises and falls based on popularity. But over the long term, it's a weighing machine. Uh, the stock prices move based on the growth of the underlying business. So if you buy uh, quality businesses with with in secular tailwinds that are just zooming higher with uh, basically semiconductors, for example, healthcare, uh, energy, these are industries that are just have tremendous tailwinds run by outstanding CEOs and you buy them at uh, at discounts to what Mr. Market is trading at that, it's pretty inevitable that you're going to make money.
0: And that's what makes this business fun. You can do it different ways and still make money. <laughs> that's that's why we're all here. But uh, anyone have a, Amber, uh, we haven't heard from you in a bit. Uh,
3: any parting thoughts? Sure. Actually, I I read a lot of studies, and there's one study I was reading from McKinsey & Company. And it was looking at decision makers of heads of companies. What are they looking for in 2023? It's all about survival. And one of the key uh, concepts is sustainability and sustainability through, of course, technology. I mean, um, some may not like tech too much, but these executives are looking toward tech for help and for using tech like AI, artificial intelligence, machine learning, and of course, robotic automation. So when I'm looking into 2023, there's one, I'm gonna actually give a ticker today because this is a stock that's in our strategic fortunes portfolio, and it's a robotics automation stock. It's UiPath, the ticker is P-A-T-H. Though its share price is down about 30% year to date, uh, UiPath's promise of helping companies to modernize their daily mundane uh, tasks and time-consuming human tasks uh, that we go through with certain companies. um they're they're getting rid of this through the implementation of robotic process automation software. Which is a, amazingly smart software that can think like a human in a way and do tasks that um, will free up time for its human counterparts to take care of. Uh, this well, art-
0: AI never has to take a lunch break. It no never takes break. sick leave. It never goes on vacation. It never has a bad day and comes to work cranky and becomes you know a, a negative influence that day. It's <laughs> it's great if you can replace human labor with with, with AI, then.
3: It's not um, even a replacement. It's more of a, we'll say, a complement. Uh, there's there are certain types of robotics. Even I was reading about Chipotle. Uh, they, as, as an aside, uh, they are looking to use robots to help make. Want to get this right? Please forgive me if I get it wrong. But it was their tortilla chips. Their tortilla I saw the, chips. I saw
0: the same headline. Mm-hmm. That was fantastic, and I have been known to frequent Chipotle, so I'm very <laughs> picky about my tortilla chips, and I'm actually really looking forward to trying the machine made ones. <laughs> Because I, I want to I know, are they yeah. getting this right?
3: Of course. And the other company, um, White Castle. I'm from New Jersey, just like Ian. So we know our White Castle burgers and chicken sandwiches. And they have flipping. I,
0: I will take my <laughs> Texas Whataburger against your White Castle any day of the week. But, But I'm sorry. I continue.
3: Oh, it's okay. They they came up with Flippy, and then there's Flippy 2, which is like a the new version of this Flippy robot, which can which is actually rivals how a, a, a human cook can make a French fry or what have you. And uh White Castle started with a trial run, and now they've put in more orders for this type of robot. So I'm just thinking going forward, it. there's still opportunities to be made. There are companies that feed the the, the the intelligence of these type of robotic automations, and UiPath is one of them. And I was actually checking out the earnings projections for. UI path and it's set to actually soar from a loss of a dollar sixteen per share for fiscal year 2022 to about 38 cents per share going out to 2026. It's going to rise steadily from year and also their yearly revenue is projected to double between now and then. So there are opportunities to be made, especially when you're looking for a company that is flush with cash, innovation, and and has a good projection for earnings and revenue going forward.
0: Well, the the problem is obvious, you know, we Mm -hmm. we don't have enough labor and we're not getting enough productivity out of labor we have. And so those companies that that have a solution to that problem, Mm -hmm. those are companies we should at least look at. You know, that's it makes all the sense in the world. Mm
3: -hmm. I concur.
0: And Adam, I'm going to let you take the uh, I'm going to let you uh, (laughs) wrap it up. Any uh, any last minute uh, comments you'd like to make, Adam?
1: I just think that if 2022 wasn't a wake-up call, everybody talks about diversification and the 60-40 portfolio being stocks and bonds. The bond portion is supposed to be less volatile and also lowly or negatively correlated with stocks, and that's supposed to provide the, the diversification for long-term investors. And 2022 was the worst year in over 50 years for those two asset classes as they both went down. Bonds are actually even more volatile. Um, so really, if that's not a wake-up call to get true diversification in your portfolio, uh, meaning not just set different sectors of the stock market, but d- different drivers of stock returns. You know, start reading about the value premium, start reading about the size premium, start reading about the quality premium. Uh, you know, at, at our Money Markets website, we offer a stock rating system that looks at those six factors for free. You can type in a ticker symbol and see what the rating of that stock is. Um, and that's really how we're trying to achieve true diversification rather than just, um, you know, going all in on a and p 500 fund and hopefully the bonds, um, you know, feather those out. So really looking at uh, for diversification, I think after this year is super important. I
0: like that true diversification. Yeah, a lot of people think they have two growth funds, that's diversification, or they have two whatever, two energy stocks, that's diversification, that, that's not diversification. Diversification is having multiple assets or strategies that don't move together, and that's that's actually one of the best aspects of, of Banyan Edge. We have uh, each 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 of us has a very different perspective. We all come to the market with very different independent ideas, and we all complement each other very well. So, on that note, this Charles, is where I'm glad you got moving. my
1: I'm, I'm glad you got my alley oop there. You uh, slam dunked it, so I set you up for that one. Good.
0: That's right. <laughs>
1: We all have have, uh
0: alley oops. I did have a rather embarrassing moment the other day. I I was walking with my son at his school and we saw a basketball hoop and I just sort of needled him in the ribs. I'm like, hey, I think I can jump up and hang on the rim. He's like, do it, Dad, do it, Dad. And so I'm thinking, oof, I've done this in a while. Let's hope I don't break something. And uh, you know, kind of squat down, jump up, and I miss. And I thought we were alone, but uh Another dad walked up and said, "Hey, bro, you missed it by about three inches."
1: <laughs>
0: we call those rival dads. Did you make him do it? <laughs> uh, no, I was humiliated and just went and sat in the corner. So uh, that was that. That was the end of that. So uh, back 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 to the gym for me. My 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 NBA dreams. May if this whole you know financial podcast thing doesn't work out, I, I don't think NBA basketball is a, a suitable backup career. Unfortunately. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But on that note, this is where we would normally have the, Q, uh, the Q&A uh, section, but we had, this is our first edition, so we actually don't have any questions to answer. But if you liked what you heard, you want to give any comments, you want to have any questions for the next one, you can reach us at BanyanEdge at BanyanHill.com. Again, that's BanyanEdge at BanyanHill.com. So we will be back next week. Same cast, same crew here. Until then safe trading.